We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. Quick question before I read from Mark 1. How many of you are certain that the world is round? Not as many as I expect. You know what? There's a growing, uh, growing community called Flat Earthers. Like this is not. I'm sure many of you heard this. Like this, it's a growing community. Maybe there's some flat earthers here. I'm not sure, but it's like more and more people are coming to this belief that the world is indeed flat. And here's here's the number one argument because this intrigues me. Weird beliefs intrigue me, okay? Again, if there's a lot of things, sorry, I just love you a little bit, weird belief. We can still agree on Jesus, we can still agree that God made the earth, whether it's flat or round, doesn't matter, right? But it's weird. I mean, because the number one argument I hear all the time is you go and you look at the, the level of the earth, you look at the horizon, and there's no curve, right? Like, it's, it's flat. If you go, I, I heard this story of this lady who went out, and she wanted to do a scientific test for herself, so she she lived near the beach, and she went out to the beach, and she saw the water on the horizon, and she held up a straight stick to it, and it matched. It was, it was level. So that was her scientific proof that the world must be flat. If you can just, like, I'm not, I should have brought a ball with me. Like, if you, if you have a big ball, and you brought it up really close to your face, you're probably not going to see the curve either, right? And you start backing out and backing out, and eventually you're going to see the curve. There's actually a scripture that says that the Lord God sits on his throne above the circle of the earth. So I'm just going to throw that one out there. That was before we had astrologists tell us that the world was round. But there's doubt. There's a lot of doubt. I'm just going to say this. like, If we can't agree if the earth is flat or round, no wonder we can't agree about this mask band, right? There's a lot of doubt going on this year. There's probably a lot of doubt going on throughout all of our lives. I have a problem with OCD, that's obsessive compulsive disorder, which is actually often called the doubting disease. Because you obsess in your thoughts and get compulsive with your actions about something because you're unsure. Wait, did I do this already? And you go back and you check it five times. That's it. So there's this, there's this problem we all have of doubt. Now, I could give you facts about how the Earth is round, but I'm not a scientist, and it doesn't matter how many facts you give, flat earthers aren't going to agree with it, right? I can give you all kinds of facts about how Jesus has come into this world, but no matter how many facts are given, how much proof is given, there's still we're going to hear this morning that even when an angel of God, a messenger of God, who's a mighty warrior, shows up magically out of nowhere and gives a message to someone, there's still doubt. And so that's why with Missio, we don't spend a lot of time doing what's called apologetics up here, which is trying to convince you with arguments and reason that Jesus is real. Because we just want to talk about Jesus and the story of Jesus and introduce you to the love of Jesus. And then as you get to know him, you will know that he's real. That's our hope and that's our prayer. But I want to start with that, like there is doubt. But the Christian faith and the story of this Bible is not one that says, hey, just believe. Beyond all doubt, just trust it. 
just take a leap of faith. That's actually not what Scripture is trying to convince us of. Scripture answers the doubt. And it answers it with a story of historical moments that have taken place throughout the story of the world. And so what we're going to find in Mark 1 and in Luke 1 and John 1 is that there are people who are doubting that this rescuer is ever going to come from God, the one that their ancestors told them about and promised them. They're doubting it's ever going to happen. And what God does is he reminds them of their history. He reminds them of the story. So last week, we started all the way back at the beginning of the story of the world with the first two people, with Adam and Eve, and how this promise was given right there in the garden. And we're going to fast forward a lot through that story this morning, and we're going to get to, finally, two people named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Adam and Eve, the first two people, were given this promise that a son would come who would end up crushing the head of the serpent who deceived them, who brought death and sin and sickness into the world. And so we learned about those two people and their offspring, and now we're going to hear about these two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and their child. So read with me in Mark 1. We're going to start in just the first seven verses. And Mark, this is his account of the gospel story. That means the good news story that Jesus is this promised rescuer who was given all the way back in the garden, that promise. This is how he starts it. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Spirit. That's God's word. Right there in the first seven verses, what Mark's doing is he is reminding his hearers, he's reminding the people of Israel, God's people, waiting for the rescuer to come about their history. And there's a lot of history given just in that. In fact, have you ever wondered, like, why is this guy John the Baptist so weird? Like, he lives out in the wilderness, he's got scraggly hair, scruffy beard, and he wears this itchy camel hair clothing and this leather belt around him, and he eats locusts. Kids, those are like giant, ugly grasshoppers. And honey. Like, why? So, he's not a vegan because he's munching on some living locusts, so like, eat some real food, you know? Honey part, like, I can get down with that, but locusts? Have you ever wondered about that? And then usually we just chop it up to, well, he's a weird dude. Isn't it amazing that like there's all kinds of weird different people that are part of God's family? That's true. But actually, he's wearing the same clothes that the prophet Elijah was known to wear in the Old Testament. This prophet, long, long ago, he would wear these same clothes. And he's eating food that reminds us of the story of Israel. Do you remember when 
Israel, there were slaves in Egypt, and there was a plague that came on Egypt in order to set the Israelites free. What was one of those plagues? It was a swarm of locusts. <laughs> Usually the locusts come and they not plague them. <laughs> right? A locust. Locusts would come and they would be devourers and they would destroy things. And it was a symbol of all throughout the Old Testament. Prophets would always talk about these other nations who would come and destroy Israel, and they would use the imagery of locusts coming into battle. And so many scholars believe that what John's doing and what Mark's doing in retelling this part, like there's, there's a whole lot of things you can say about Jesus that scripture says he can't even fit into one book. Why did he make it a point to take time to say, this dude John ate locusts, by the way? Because he's reminding you. He's reminding me that Israel was always supposed to be a light to the other nations, but because of their sin, the nations have come and consumed them. But preparing the way for the one who would come, and he would set all things right. That he would set things right between Israel and all of the nations. He was consuming these locusts. Honey. Remember, they were brought into this land that was supposed to be his promised land flowing with milk and that even in even in your sin and your rebellion even in the discipline that needs to come punching on locusts that there's still sweetness coming to you that God has not given up on his promise of bringing you into this land that he's promised you flowing with milk and honey even just unpacking someone's diet in the scripture you start to see like oh man there's a lot going on here Tons of different authors throughout the ages, throughout centuries, writing all these different books, making up this Bible. Here's the most apologetic thing you're going to get from me, probably ever. It's like, how do you tie someone's diet together with the history of Israel like that? Unless there's a divine author. There's someone telling you all. But let's get more like concrete with it, right? He starts with, he says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet. What's interesting here is actually, this is coming from Isaiah chapter 40. But it's also coming from Malachi chapter 3, and he does a hybrid of these two. And we just went through Malachi. So Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, and he kind of smashes them together. I am sending you my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. That's what that's from Malachi 3:1. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight from Isaiah 43. Jump down with me in verse 7, he says, This is what John says when he's older now. One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. Were you guys uh, with us when we, when we followed through Ruth? Do you remember going through the book of Ruth? And the story of Ruth is, at the end of it, if we just fast forward through it, the end of it, Ruth meets this guy, Boaz, who was what was called her kinsman redeemer. And so like his job was to marry her and protect her because she was a widow. She had no one to provide for her. But he goes, wait, wait, there's someone else first. There's this cousin of mine. And actually, he's a closer relative. He was here before me, and so let's go to him and see if he wants to do the job. And there's this weird part in the story of Ruth. Again, why do these details matter? There's this weird part in the story of Ruth where that dude, the cousin he goes to, says, here, here's my sandal. <laughs> He unties the sandal and gives it to him, which was an old customary way for the Jewish people to say, no, I am relinquishing my right, even at my shame, because to have your feet uncovered in public was shameful. Even at my shame, I'm relinquishing my right to you, for you, cousin, 
who came after me to be the one who redeems this woman. And so John is saying, there's this cousin of mine who came after me, he was born after me, and I am not worthy to take his sandal out of him and say, this is my right. No, he's the one who's coming to redeem all of Israel and all the world. This is why we spend time in Ruth and in Malachi and in Jonah, because what is John doing? His whole purpose here is to come and proclaim, verse 4, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, the thing Jonah was supposed to do to Nineveh, and he refused. All of this is one connected story. So right off the bat, from seven verses in Mark 1, we're seeing there's something significant here about this guy, John. Because like, have you ever asked that question before? Why does John even exist? What does he matter? Why did God need him as part of this claim, right? Couldn't Jesus have just come? If you're going to start your story, Mark, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, why do you start with telling about this guy named John first? Wasn't he just another guy? And so what we're going to do in Luke 1 is we're going to zoom in a little bit. If you don't know where Luke is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's the next book over. Luke chapter 1, we're going to zoom in a little bit, and we're going to, where Mark gave an overview and said, hey, this guy John was born, and then here he was as an adult, we're going to hear about this miraculous birth of John. Because Christmas is about a miraculous birth, right? But there's another miraculous birth that happens first. And this young man named John. And so Luke 1, we're going to read, starting in verse 5. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. Stop there for a second. So you have these two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they're like what you would call the Jewish power couple. Right? So he is this priest, he works in the temple, from the lineage of this guy Abijah, who's like renowned in historical uh, Jewish history. And then you have his wife, Elizabeth, who was a descendant of Aaron. And if you remember your Jewish history well, if you remember Old Testament readings well, Aaron was the very first priest that God established after he brought his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he had Moses, this, this prophet, lead his people into freedom he assigned Moses' brother Aaron to be a priest. And so this priesthood came out of Aaron's lineage. So you have these two people who are like, their, their status as this priest's lineage for Israel would have been like power couple status. Except, don't think like mega church pastor, you know, Stephen Furtick status, right? Think of like, I don't know, a church of like 20 people in 2020 pastor status, right? Because now they're not, Israel's not, they're not on top of the world. They've been overtaken by another empire, by the Roman Empire. And so these two people who would have been a power couple are living in poverty. 
just like the rest of their brothers and sisters, the rest of their neighbors and verse their And to make matters worse, what does it say about them in verse 7? They had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well alone years. Now, in this culture, in this time, if you could not have a child, there's something wrong with you. That's the way they saw it. Because children were a gift from God. They were a blessing from God. It was, it was a creational mandate to be fruitful and multiply, right? So if, if you couldn't have kids, it's probably because of some kind of sin in your life. And in fact, usually it's pointed directly at the woman. It was never the man's fault. It was probably the woman's fault. And so what would happen is you would find another woman to carry a child for you. It would be your wife's servant, it would be a concubine, another wife you would take on. But, as a priest, Zechariah is committed to his wife. They're a couple who love the Lord, who fear the Lord, who follow his ways. And all these years, they can't have children. So it says they're well advanced in years, that means they're old. They're old. I don't know how old exactly, but they're well beyond the years of having a child. Does this remind you of any other story in the history of the Bible? Who else was old and couldn't have kids? Abraham. Abraham, yeah. You guys just say it out loud. Abraham and Sarah, right? And God called Abraham. He said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Out of your descendants. You're going to have children, and this huge nation, this multitude of people, are going to grow out of your lineage. And I want you to do that through your wife, Sarah. And they can have kids, and they get well into their 90s. And Abraham's wondering, is this promise ever going to happen? And just like with Abraham and Sarah, when they doubted, and they thought, there's no way this promise could happen, God showed up, and he delivered a miracle, because his promise is true. And you now have historically proven this whole lineage of people who have come from Abraham and Sarah. What a testament of God coming through those promises. We see this happening now again. Centuries later, 400 years after people have not heard from a prophet, they have not heard directly from the word of the Lord, and they're wondering, is this promise ever going to come true? God reminds them of how he started this whole thing. Two people following the Lord who are unable to have children on their own would have been ostracized by the community if it weren't for the fact that they came from this lineage of priests. And so what happens next in the story, if you were to continue reading on, which I encourage you to do at another point, for the sake of time, I'll summarize it for you. What happens is, Zechariah, as a priest, what you would do is you would go and you would work in the temple. You had your division of, kind of like if you think about military, you set up different divisions, right, of the same group of people. There's different divisions of the priests, and your division will be called up two week-long periods out of the year to go and serve outside the temple. But when your division went, there would be this lottery that would happen, right? It would be like kind of like drawing names from hand, And one priest would be chosen to go serve in the temple. Go in and light the incense so that the people, all the Israels, Israelites staying outside the temple, they'd see the incense go up and they'd go, now it's time to pray. Our prayers will go up with the incense and the Lord will hear. And Zechariah gets chosen. 
Now, this method of casting lots, well, I don't know exactly how it works. Like I said, it's like the equivalent of pulling a name from a hat or like tossing the dice. But this wasn't chance for them. They believed this is what the Lord called them to do for him to choose instead of them choosing. So the Lord chooses Zechariah to go into this point. And he goes into the temple. It's a once-in-a-lifetime deal. Like, you don't get to do this ever again. And most people never get to do it. So how amazing this honor bestowed to him. We can't have kids. We have dishonor and shame in our culture. But this is going to set the record straight. We can't be sinful people if the Lord has chosen me to go into the temple, right? So he goes in. And when he goes in, this warrior appears. His name's Gabriel. Messenger from God. He shows up. And let me tell you, like when angels show up in the story of the Bible, it's not like this cute little baby with wings and, and a halo playing the harp, right? It's not like the way that we pictured it in our media. It's a scary thing. Oftentimes throughout scripture, people fall down and they go, just kill me now. Or they get physically sick because they're so afraid. And so he goes from this moment of like, like, oh man, what honor the Lord has chosen me to go into the temple. And you have to be super, super clean to do it. Because if you go into the temple and you've like touched any fluids recently, you know, you didn't hand sanitize and mask up, you, you weren't clean physically, and you went in, you get stricken down dead. And so he sees this warrior of God appear, and can you imagine how frightening that But he goes, Don't be afraid. The Lord has heard your prayer, and he's given you a son. Miraculous birth. And Zechariah's like, How can this be? Give me a sign so that I know this is true because my wife and I are old. I mean, I don't even know if we still know how. And the angel goes, all right, you want a sign? Here you go. And he strikes a mute. It's like God presses the mute button on Zechariah. He says, you will not be able to talk again until your child is born. Now, if you keep fast-forwarding, next week we're going to hear the story of another couple where there's a young woman who hears this word from the Lord. You're going to have a child, and she says, there's no way, how can this be? She doesn't get rebuked like that. Because her response is not showing me a sign. Her response is, that's incredible that God can do such a thing. That's the how can this be type of response. But his response is, show me a sign. So I believe that there's some discipline happening here that Gabriel's going, hey, I just appeared to you out of nowhere. What other sign do you need, right? So there's some discipline going, since you didn't believe, here's what's going to happen. But it's also an answer to his request. Here's your sign then. If you didn't believe this sign, that I just appeared out of nowhere, here's your sign. You know how Israel hasn't heard from a prophet for over 400 years? You're going to be silent too until this new prophet comes. Again, it's, it's all tied into this story. Nothing is just this random bit of information given. It's all connected together. So you will be in silence the next nine months. And his wife Elizabeth, she hears this. Remember the blame, the shame would have been given to the woman who can't have a child. And what does Elizabeth do? How does she respond? She shows faith. I want to read that video out on the slides, but if we jump down, 
Verse 18 is when Zechariah says, how can I know this? Let's get down. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, for the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. She believes. She believes it's happening. God has shown his favor and grace on me. I want to go back to my question earlier. Why does John even exist? Why right now show up and do this miraculous birth of a normal dude before the miraculous birth of the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world, six months later? Why does it matter? Well, we've heard as we were going through Malachi, we read it in Isaiah, that God promised there would be a messenger to come first to point people, to be like a preview, to prepare the way of the coming rescuer. But you just had an angel do that. With Zechariah, you're going to have an angel do that with Mary. Couldn't you have just sent more of those messengers to tell people? Right? And the angel shows up and that he doesn't even believe. So it's not like, man, God, if you would just like send the angels, like, man, everybody would believe. Why don't you just show yourself? It doesn't work that way. We're stubborn. We're full of doubt. We have the doubting disease. People still will not believe, no matter what proof and evidence you have. So why, John? Why a human? Why would people listen to a regular man? So yes, it's fulfilling God's prophecy from the Old Testament. But why did he set that up in the first place? And the only answer I can come to is I've been asking God this. And he says, who have I been working with this whole time? Who have I chosen to partner with this whole story through? From the very beginning, I created man to partner with me to care for my creation. I chose to partner with these first two people to create more humans and fill the earth. Let's do it. When, when that serpent came and fed a lie into the world, and there was a curse, my promise was that there would be a seed from the woman. Not that I would just step out of heaven one day out of nowhere, but that I would choose to partner with the man and the woman, coming together in unity, reflecting what I'm like, and through that, I would come into the world. Isn't it incredible that God chooses this normal human birth, a normal person named John, to come into the world and be part of this story of God bringing hope, peace, joy, love, salvation. And that God wants to do that with you and me too. He wants to partner with you. He's always had a plan to partner with humanity for his good working purposes. Zechariah's name actually means my God remembers. And Elizabeth's name means my God is a promise. John, you know, John, he's told by the angel, you're to name him John. And when John is born, there's all these ladies around for the birth, all these midwives, and they're all family and community, and they're all saying, hey, name him Zechariah after his father, because the custom was you name your, your firstborn, especially after someone in your family who's come before you. 
Naaman sent Uriah after his father. And Elizabeth said, no. Zechariah told these things to John, and they don't believe her. You don't listen to the woman. No, 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 no. Zechariah. Zechariah, they say, what are we supposed to name him? And he says, he said, most for something to write down. And he writes down, it is John. And as soon as they see it, and he wrote it, suddenly he's able to speak. And the name John, you have Zechariah, my God remembers. You have Elizabeth, my God is a promise. And the name John simply means God is God has remembered his promises and he is gracious. And then Zechariah just bursts forth. Like he has been talking for nine months and now you can't shut the dude up. And this is what he says. He had a long time to put this poem together. And this is what he says. In Luke 1, let's jump down to verse 67. That his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Remember, silence before the prophet comes. Silence for nine months. Then he prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Listen to the history in this. The history of the promises fulfilled. Let me read that again. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David. Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us, he has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He traces it all the way back. All these promises made through Abraham, through King David, that there will be a better king to come, through the prophets, that there would be one who would come, the suffering servant who would rescue us all. Remember all of that? God is faithful. He has given us the privilege, verse 74, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. He's saying God has given us this great joy of partnering with him. Verse 76, he now turns it. He's been directing at how good God is. And then he goes, man, let, let's talk about this good gift he's just given us. I have a son. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. He's repeating that promise in Isaiah and in Malachi to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. It's incredible that people don't believe when an angel shows up. And God allowed this man to lead, I don't know how many people, we're not giving a number, but it says a multitude of people come out to the wilderness, to the desert, to see this weird-looking dude who's eating locusts, and they turn and repent from their sins. God uses that human, this man, in a great way. And he dumps them in some water to symbolize they need to be washed from their sins and raised to new life with God to follow after him. God uses a regular man for that. This is what he says. Verse 78, because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What he's saying is what John's going to say later. Hey, there's one even greater than the sun who's coming. 
It's a miracle that God's provided the Son, and He's going to do some cool things through the Spirit of the Lord's power. But there is a greater one coming, one who He's not even fit to untie His sandals. John says it this way in John chapter 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He says, All things were created through Him, and there's nothing that exists in the world that is not here because of Him. And He was the life. And that life was the light of men. That that light has shone into the darkness. But listen, the darkness did not no matter what proof you get. Our eyes are just shut. And we need this light to just flood in and awaken us from the darkness. And I can't give you stats and, and proof. We need Jesus to show up. We need his spirit to come upon us, to awaken us, to open our eyes, to see the light. In John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He is the light that is to awaken the world from our darkness, from our sin, from our distractions, from our our mess, our entanglement in sin, our selfishness. And Jesus, the light, has come into the world. Are your eyes open to see him? The Christ said that this light will shine into the darkness and will shine into the deep dark places. Let me read that again real quick. At the end of Luke 1, at the end of his poem, he says, verse 78, Our God's merciful compassion that dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and what else? In the shadow of death. Next week, we get to celebrate that the light was born into the world. But why? That's the same question we asked of John. Why? Why did that light come? It was so that he would, that light, would in a sense get snuffed out for a moment. Would enter into the shadow of death on our behalf. That Jesus himself goes into the grave, into the tomb, into death, taking on the full punishment of what we deserve by rebelling against his partnership with God. And he goes into the grave for us but on the third day, that light cannot be hidden. And it bursts forth from the grave, from the tomb. And Jesus comes out victorious. The darkness cannot contain the light. And that is all the proof we need that Jesus lives still today, forever, always. And that he has given that light to you and I. If we trust in him, the light is his Holy Spirit dwelling amongst us. And we now are called to go out and be the salt and the light to the world around us, to show the dark world, to show those with their eyes closed that there is light and hope, and that the light is the life given to all mankind. So would you pray with me that we can do that in the power of Jesus?